The following is an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, originally broadcast on May 1st. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Monday, and we've got a special show for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Mercer will be with us. Coming right up. Welcome to another week, right here on the bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge, and I'm uh, back in Canada after, um, well, an extended stay in uh, Scotland, and uh, had a wonderful time, and was busy uh, writing um, and contributing to a new book that I'm doing with uh, Mark Bulgich, my good friend, uh, who together we wrote Extraordinary Canadians a couple of years ago. This is different. This one will be different, and I'll tell you all about it when I'm allowed to tell you all about it. Um, in terms of this week, uh, we're going to start off with uh, an interview with my old friend and somebody who you adore, Rick Mercer, the comedian and author uh, who is so familiar to us uh, through uh, television over the last, gosh, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Uh, but has been absent from TV for the last couple of years. Uh, for the most part, he's done a couple of specials, but for the most part, he's been absent. What's he been up to? How's he thinking about different things? We're going to talk all about that uh, when he joins us uh, in a few minutes' time. But I wanted to start, because this week is Coronation Week, uh, I wanted to start, as I probably will a couple of times this week, with, with, a, with a story that relates to the king, Charles III, uh, but probably a story you're not going to find anywhere else, uh, at least not this week. And here's the one I'm going to tell you today, because I think it's, it's kind of neat. Have you ever heard of Megan Boyd? Probably not, although anybody who is a fly fisher has probably heard of Megan Boyd. Because she was credited with being the best fly fish tire in the world. You know those little ties that you uh, adorn your hook with when you're fly fishing? Well, she was a great fly fish tire. She lived in a little community on the northeast shore of Scotland overlooking the North Sea, called Brora, actually just outside of Brora. Now, whenever I've heard that story, I've wanted to go to that spot where she lived by herself, and she did fish flies, fish, fish fly ties. And so I was there just last week standing on the shore overlooking the North Sea at a beautiful spot just outside of Brora, overlooking the Brora sand beaches and out towards the North Sea. Now, her house has stood there since she lived in it. She was born more than 100 years ago, 1915, died in 2001. The house still stands. It's in terrible shape. The roof is caved in. The windows are broken. There's still 
furniture inside, you know, the, 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 the bones of furniture, like the kitchen sink and a beautiful kind of mantle around one of the fireplaces. But the house is, is a wreck. It's a teardown. The location is spectacular overlooking the sea. Anyway, I was there last week because I'd heard this story and I wanted to try and place myself next to it. Well, here was this woman who lived alone who did fly ties and was acknowledged as the best, the best you could find. Well, you know who loves fly? fly? <laughs> I'm going to get these words out right. You know who loves fly fishing? Charles, has since he was a little boy. Well, somewhere, as the legend goes, and they tell the story around Brora, somewhere in the early 1980s, Charles was heading to northern Scotland. His grandmother lived there. Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, had a castle in the north end of Scotland. And he was heading up that way because he was going to do some fly fishing. And I guess he thought, I should really stop at Megan Boyd's place. I've never met her, but I should stop there because she's the best. So, driving north from wherever they landed, probably in Inverness, He pulled into the driveway off the A9, the main highway, that heads north. They call it the North Coast 500 now. They pulled off the A9, went up her driveway. You know, and while his aide-de-camp and everybody else stood there waiting, he went up and knocked on the door. Megan Boyd comes to the door, opens the door. Says, yes, can I help you? And Charles says, I, I'm just heading north, and I'm going to go fly fishing, and I've heard that you're the best, and I was wondering if there was any chance you might have a, a couple of those flies handy that you could sell to me. She looked at him, and if she knew who he was, she didn't say so. But she looked at him and she said, actually, I don't. I have some flies, but they're already accounted for. They've already been sold. And I'm just prepared to start making some new ones, but it'll be a while. And so Charles said, oh, well, I'm very sorry to have bothered you. And, and I wish you did have one, but obviously you don't. And Megan Boyd said, well, perhaps you can try again. And he turned around and left. Charles, the future king, shot down on a request for a new fishing tie. So that's kind of the story, except later they did become friends. He wrote a letter, one of his aides wrote a letter to her and said, you know, Charles had been there recently and was hoping to buy a fish 
fly tie, and unfortunately, you didn't have any, and I was wondering whether we could, you know, arrange for some to be made for him. And sure enough, a relationship developed between the two, corresponding, and Charles would stop there on occasion. So that's kind of the story. He told his mother, the queen, about Megan Boyd. She awarded her a special place in the British Empire Awards and <laughs> sent a letter up to Megan Boyd to explain that there would be a ceremony at Buckingham Palace. And Megan Boyd said, wrote back and said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't make it because I have nobody to look after my corgi. She had the same kind of dog as the queen. So there you go. The story of Megan Boyd and Charles. The once future this week to be cor. What are you? Are you coronated? The coronation of the new king, King Charles III. The man who knocked on the door of Megan Boyd and was told, sorry, don't have any. See you later, pal. Okay, time for Rick Mercer. Rick would have fun with that story, I bet. Time for Rick Mercer. Uh, but we don't want to interrupt him, so we'll take our, our one and only break right now, and then when we come back, we'll have our chat right after this. Well, I don't think there's much I need to do, say to introduce Rick Mercer. He is one of, uh, you know, he's a proud asset of our country, right? He's he's Rick Mercer, star of the Rick Mercer Report, 22 minutes, a variety of books, I think four bestsellers already. And I'm sure this new one that he's working on right now will be another bestseller. But he's somebody we've missed through the last couple of years because after he stepped away from the Rick Mercer report, he wanted a break. He wanted some calm in his life. And, uh, but we've missed him. And we've missed his particular brand of humor and his way of making us think about what it is, what particular issue we might go, be going through. So I reached out to Rick and said, let's talk. Let's talk about what you've been up to. And uh, he was nice enough to agree. So let's get it started. Here we go. Rick Mercer. So, Rick, I got a letter the other day from one of our listeners, and and the request was simple. Where's Rick Mercer? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be wondering, why haven't you called? <laughs> we, we sometimes text outrage at each other. We do. But uh, we haven't uh, got together on the Zoom like this in quite a while. Well, the last time you told me where you were, you were in Los Angeles. Yeah, I was actually in Palm Springs. I'm working on a book, and I hadn't left the country in three years, and I had a lot of writing to do, so I went to Palm Springs, and I uh, I just sat in the warm and wrote for a couple of weeks. It was great. So you're writing another book. Yeah. I mean, you, you cleaned up on the last one. It was a great book, 
and did extremely well. And, you know, you were stuck at number one for, it seemed like months. Uh, so good for you. Congratulations on that. Um, but what's the new one about? Can you tell us anything about it yet? Um, well, the working title was more about me. <laughs> <laughs> I just pick up where I left off. And then I, and then I, it's a, it's the story of the road. The last book was a memoir, but it ended when I moved to Toronto to launch the Mercer Report. And of course, the Mercer Report happened, and I was on the road for 15 years nonstop. I traveled to every nook and cranny of the country, and the book is about those days. Do you miss those days? No, not really. I thought I would. Um, I left on my, my own accord, but of course, the pandemic would have taken me off the air anyway because the show was so travel oriented and there was so many even i would get emails from people who are watching in reruns during the pandemic and say it's so weird watching this show you've hugged 30 <laughs> people and we're only five minutes in um so i couldn't have done the show um but no i don't miss it i like to travel but i don't miss the travel you must see an awful lot of people though when you do travel who say come on you got to get back on there yeah, and that's very kind. I never know whether they're being sincere or not. What else are you supposed to say? <laughs> How many people say you're my favorite anchor of all time? Yeah. Then, then they, they say, on the corner, there's Lisa LaFlamme. Lisa, my God, you're my favorite anchor of all time. <laughs> exactly. But people are very kind. People are very kind. Uh, I, I thank my stars every day that I was on the CBC when I was on the CBC. I'm sure you do the same thing yep. when we had a great audience. And, uh, it was great fun to travel around the country, get the response that we got. It was great fun knowing that people were watching. That was just a, that was a real, that was the greatest privilege of my life. Greatest honor. It was great. Yeah. And you're right about that. I mean, I've done a number of shows recently that have touched on the CBC because it's become a national issue. It's become a political issue. And there are, you know, there are questions about the CBC and uh, its positioning these days. It's not easy to be a broadcaster of any kind right now because everything's changing out there in terms of the, the technology of broadcasting and just in, in terms of the uh, landscape uh, for various networks. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, you, you're a horse today, and now you somehow spread it to me across the Atlantic. I don't know how you managed to do that. Um but, you know, there have been a lot of things about the corporation that have been out there uh, in, in in terms of a discussion point. And when we were in, at least when I was in the CBC, I was always reluctant to take part in any of those conversations because it oh. felt like a conflict, right? Oh, absolutely. I never, ever spoke about public broadcasting, even when it became an issue. I could start today and still be here this time tomorrow and talk about the importance of public broadcasting. My book as you so kindly mentioned, is in many ways a love story to the CBC because it had such a huge influence on my life as a child, believe it or not, and then as a young adult, and then eventually I ended up on the CBC. I was never an employee. Uh, I never was I ever a CBC employee, but I was very much for quite a while. I was the face, of, one of the faces of CBC. But even though I made my living talking about a lot of different issues, I never spoke to the CBC. It was it just seemed like, it, yeah, I had too much skin in the game. It was ridiculous. So now it feels very odd to talk about it. It's almost like a third rail. That said, when you're in the CBC, as you know, um, there's only two topics. How, you know, how you would fix it if you were running it. And, uh, and what's wrong with this damn place, even in the heyday. 
and we've all played that game. But it's uh, it's very unfortunate to see it as a as a uh, 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 you know a point of discussion whether it should even exist. I will say this: Pierre Poilievre in um, in Newfoundland uh, got a really large applause break, as he does everywhere in the country, when he talks about defunding the CBC. And I never thought in my life I would see that. Newfoundlanders have always supported the CBC to an incredible uh, level. And um, that would be, no one in their right mind would go into Newfoundland and say, defund the CBC. And now he's getting an applause break. It's uh, it's something to see. It's very it's sad. In some ways, you know, I I don't mind that he's made it a discussion point because I do think there needs to be a kind of national discussion and debate about the future of public broadcasting, national public broadcasting, and what it is exactly Canadians want out of their public broadcaster. Because there's a lot of confusion about that. And, you know, politicians can't resolve it. People have to weigh in on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of defunding, but I am a fan of a fan of discussing and debating and, uh, you know, having different options put before us as to what could be a future for a public broadcaster in Canada. Well, I would lo- I would welcome the conversation. And you're right. It has to happen because there's been many changes. They've been incremental in many ways over the years, even when I was there, that I didn't like. And the big big one was regional broadcasting. Um, You know, living in Toronto, I could understand that it was very hard for CBC Toronto to say, to carve out an audience in a market that's flooded the way Toronto is. But where I grew up, Newfoundland was integral. It was part of the story. Uh, You know, I follow a fellow, uh, he's well retired now, but uh, on Facebook, and he, he puts up shows that he directed and produced at the CBC in his career, in little old Newfoundland, when it was his own region. And every musician of a certain vintage was on the shows. And every actor and Mary Walsh and Andy Jones and Kathy Jones, they all they all had they had like sketch comedy shows. And there was all of this material. Uh, CBC St. John's right now, um, they have a difficulty doing an in-studio interview in the same studio where they used to do big variety shows featuring Newfoundland artists and 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 political chat shows and all of that business. And that's all gone away. And at the beginning of the pandemic, a decision was made to stop broadcasting completely in Newfoundland, which I remember when someone told me, I said, no, you're wrong. You heard that wrong. And they said, no, they're not going to broadcast out of Newfoundland. And it was in a national emergency. It's like, no, you're wrong. You are 100% wrong. Take it from me. And then, of course, I looked at my phone and that was the decision that was made. There were some bad decisions around that, and you know, clearly in Newfoundland, but across the country, and initially on the local news front, when the pandemic hit, it was you know that really hurt, and they they still feel the consequences today. Uh, okay, we're not going to talk about the CBC. Okay, yeah, enough of that. <laughs> enough already. And, yeah, you know, you're obviously known for a lot of different things about your. Um, you know, uh, about the Rick Mercer report from earlier days in 22 minutes from, you know, among other things, jumping into a lake naked with Bob Ray. I mean, that, that took a lot of courage, uh, standing on top of the CN tower. You know, I don't know how you did that. I can't even look up there, let alone stand up there, but you're also, you know, you're, you're really known for your rants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got to ask you if you were still doing rants today, 
what would you be ranting about? Well, of course, I'd be pump, pumping one out every week. Uh, right now, I, I, you know, one of the things I'd rant about is, uh, and this is bad news for uh, Justin Trudeau, is the price of a Kit Kat. And I don't even eat Kit Kats, but but uh, near the end of the summer in Conception Bay, South Newfoundland, I was in the home hardware, and I looked at the, near the cash, there was a Kit Kat, and uh, it said three forty nine. I'm like, my God. Now, I have many vices, but buying chocolate bars is not one of them. So it's been a long time since I bought a chocolate bar. And I said, is that right? $3.49 for a chocolate bar? And she said, I know. Isn't that crazy? So it was right. And then I started everywhere I went. I began pricing the Kit Kat, no matter what kind of store I was in. And uh, I just think that inflation, people gassing up the tank and feeling it at the tank. I'm not, you know, I, I don't have it in me to stand up and say, Mr. Speaker, it's because of Justin Trudeau that uh, Kit Kat's $3.49, because you can get them at the dollar store for a dollar. But I think that that is the issue of our times. Absolutely. It's the new COVID. For a while, every time anyone saw each other who had the COVID, what's going on with COVID? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Now it's all about the price of gas or all about the price of housing. All about, it's all about cost. And uh, very bad news for Justin Trudeau, I would, I would expect. Well, it's bad news, um, you know, for anybody in government when inflation takes hold like this and they don't seem to have any answers. But opposition leaders, whoever they may be, seem to be able to get away with just criticizing and not saying, well, of course, if I was there, this is what I would do and inflation would come down. They never say that. And quite frankly, I think Pierre Poilievre has done a really good job, but he's getting very close to jumping the shark. Um this, like two days ago, I watched a video of Pierre Poilier and he's at a seat festival, the spring festival, the spring harvest festival. And he goes, "What? where are we? And this Sikh fellow says, oh, it's the festival, the spring harvest. And Pierre looks at the camera and says, but of course, you're the one who plants the seeds. You grow the crops, but Justin Trudeau's coming and taking your seeds and taking your crops. I was like, this is a really a bridge too far. Never mind, there is no spring harvest in Canada. I don't know. I don't know what he thinks people are planting and growing, but uh, it's really. I think he's very close to jumping the shark. And yesterday in the House of Commons, um, you know, complaining about Justin Trudeau going to New York and saying, "I pay for my hotel rooms. Do you pay for yours? And will he pay for his?" And I'm wondering, does he believe that he pays for his hotel rooms? <laughs> he doesn't pay for his hotel rooms. You know that. I know that. <laughs> but yet he'll just say it. <laughs> when was the last time he paid for a hotel room? Come on. He lives in a house owned by the government with a maid and a driver. It's uh, it's absurd. You know, when you, you mentioned Polyev's videos, now some people say he learned to do those videos walking around talking into his camera. Yeah. He learned those by watching Mercer. <laughs> well, they're somewhat similar. Uh, and I'll tell you, it was, I can't tell you how many times I, uh, I, you know, wanted to kick myself for starting to do rants that were all in one take and moving because it's just not to blow my own horn, but it's really hard. It takes a lot of takes. It's a lot of work and he's very good at it. He's very, very good at it. Um, I don't know how many takes, maybe he'll lie and say he does it in one, but, uh, <laughs> he's pretty good. I got to say. When you did but yours, the content does matter. The content does matter, and I think he's. Uh, I mean, if I was advising him, I would really have him dial it down. Like I, I sincerely believe that he hates Justin Trudeau. Um, not that he disagrees with him; that's fine. But I, 
you know, I don't think it's it's a good image for a public figure or someone who wants to lead the country to kind of be oozing hate. It's uh, I think it'll it, it won't get you across the finish line. I don't think either of them like each other. I mean, I don't no. know whether hate is is too strong a word, but I, I think it's close to a mutual feeling between the two of them. It could very well be. It could very well be. And I, uh, you know, the other thing I would be ranting about is that I can't believe there's not more forces in play telling Justin Trudeau it's time for a walk in the snow. Um, he's just been there for a long time. I think I think politicians in his position when they become prime ministers, um, you know, politics is my baseball. It always fascinated me. But like with baseball, people become obsessed with these idiotic statistics that really mean nothing you know what baseball people like and and trudeau's doing the same thing he's going well if i just hang in there for another year and a half i will then be one month i will serve one month more than brian mulrooney and then if i hang in for another year oh my god i'll be in and this is the motivation that they have at this point instead of like how about it's time to go the sound the other thing he's doing with actors sometimes if they're in a role the director has to come back in every couple of months because the actors get bigger every night. And then eventually the directors have got to come in and step on them and say, bring it down, bring it down. And that's what Justin is doing. I watched him announcing this battery plant and he's saying, he doesn't say we'll get our you know, investment back in five years. It's we'll get our investment back in five years. Look, is this the opening of a battery plant or are you auditioning for Lear? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Just bring it down, dude. You know, uh, using that, you know, it's a real Trumpian phrase, you know, some people say, <laughs> but because it, he, he used to use it all the time, he still uses it. Some people say, and we were supposed to right. assume that means it's true. But there are those who argue, well, let's put it that way, that, uh, that Trudeau may well have been thinking of leaving after the last election, the disappointment of, uh, you know, another minority. Um, but what changed his mind was the emergence of Pierre Polyev, that he just can't stand the thought of walking away from a fight with this guy. He doesn't like him. They don't like each other. He wants to fight him like he, like he had that boxing match whenever that was years ago that most people didn't give him a lot of hope for winning that thing, and yet he went into it and he trained and he worked hard and he he won the boxing match. And he looks at this as, I can't leave this guy. I can't leave the stage to him. I've got to take him out. Um, that's interesting. I guess it's possible someone in his position would say, could decide I'm the best chance of beating this guy. I'm going to do it for Canada. So I guess he's doing it for altruistic reasons. I don't see it, Peter, the okay. altruistic reasons. I don't. But I do get the, uh, I want to beat this guy. I can see that as a motivation. Well, I guess we're, well, it could be a couple of years before we find out the answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if the election was tomorrow, it would be, yeah, it would be fascinating to see what would happen. Okay, what beyond politics interests you? Are you a monarchist? I mean, you're from Newfoundland. Aren't they all monarchists in Newfoundland? If I say no, will that preclude me being the left-handed governor of Newfoundland? 
<laughs> That's the ambition now. <laughs> That's it. It's a lovely house. There have been some, it is a lovely house. I've been in that house. It's a lovely house, and there have been some great Canadians who've occupied that house. Oh, John Crosby was down there for sure. Jim McGraw. Yeah. Yeah. There, um, there's some been some great ones. Like clearly, the monarchy's in serious trouble. You know, Canadians had such affection for Queen Elizabeth, and such a. I mean, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever see another figure play a role like that in the world, in the English world anyway, ever. I mean, it's incredible, the history that she lived and, and never wrote a book. Can you imagine what that book would have been worth? <laughs> How many rooms she was in? Uh, yeah, they're clearly in big trouble. Well, uh, what was it? 60% of Canadians really yeah. have no interest in Charles being king? Uh, that's astounding to me it's a big number and it's you know it's risen fairly see, quickly and i think it's been I, like because as you say you know there was a there was deep affection for elizabeth even if there yeah. wasn't deep loyalty to the idea of the monarchy there was deep affection to her yeah i saw the writing on the wall when uh in newfoundland prince charles uh with camilla on the the coming out of camilla tour uh first stop was in saint john's newfoundland and um 24 hours before, Danny Williams had to close all the schools on the Avalon and bust the children in because no one was going. They knew how many people were going to go because they were free tickets, but it was in a stadium. And uh, nobody had an interest. And there was the prime minister and Danny Williams and Philip and Camilla and a bunch of seven-year-olds <laughs> going, who are these people? Uh, and that was unheard of in Newfoundland. Any royal visit would just happen. Right. Huge numbers, huge turnout. The Royals love going to Newfoundland for that reason. I remember when Charles came to Newfoundland in, because I was there, it was 83 or it's probably around somewhere around 83, when he came first visit with Diana. It oh, was yeah, like I was there. Wall-to-wall -wall people, right? I was there at the Aqua yeah. Arena. And in fact, I'll tell you the story. My sister was in the car and her friend, and I was in the car, and we pulled up. And they, just as they were pulling in, and my sister and her friend went like, oh, my God, it's Diana, it's Diana. And I looked out, and I saw you, and I was like, holy shit, it's Peter Mansbridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure you did. And I, no, true. Well, I was a news junkie. I had, <laughs> princess, I was a child, Peter. I'm substantially younger than you. I was a little child. But uh, it, to me, that was so glamorous. You had the big, you know, the big riser, and you were up there broadcasting with the lights. And when you're a kid like me, my God, that's yeah. like moth to a flame. Much should, more than I should tell. I should tell you the real story of that day. Sitting up on the riser, nothing worked. Everything was plugged in the wrong way, and it was just a disaster <laughs> from one minute to the next. It was quite something. But she wasn't. She was like, well, you know, the the people where it just went yeah. crazy for her and they continue to do that throughout the tour. I remember in Halifax, I mean, I think they went from St. John's to Halifax and in Halifax, they were worried that the grass wasn't green enough. So they painted it green. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Canada, you say, um, but I, you know, I, I was thinking and I, I kind of mentioned it the other day on the podcast that if, you know, if certain things hadn't happened, if Charles and Diana hadn't gone separate ways, if she hadn't been, you know, killed in that awful car crash in Paris, if next week the coronation was Charles and Diana, it would be a huge deal. 
because of her now yes i think so um but who knows i mean absolutely who knows and the queen probably did quite a disservice to charles by just sticking around for as long as she did you're really into the you're really into this oh anybody in a position get out of it let's go a minute ago it was trudeau now now you think the queen is part of leaving if you're a prime minister is you want to leave the party in some decent shape and the few bucks in the in the bank and 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 give someone a chance to to get their feet about them before an election and likewise i mean charles is an elderly man who's now supposed to be the king and she's going to be the queen you know if if uh charles abdicated and passed it to the next generation i think those numbers would not be 60 percent if it was his son i know there's a system in place and monarchists will say well it just doesn't work that way but if it by magic it happened i think uh the next generation would probably have some success but never mind canada my god look at the half of the commonwealth they're looking at and now here's an old white man like that doesn't wash it just doesn't we don't have that problem here but uh yeah a lot of countries they're not interested in an old white guy coming along and being their king so you're not out there hanging the bunting out on the street in uh, in Toronto for uh, the coronation. <laughs> no. And you tell me, you probably have your finger on the pulse of the Canadian psyche over there in Scotland than I do here. Is <laughs> is there any buzz around this coronation? No, I, I got to tell you, I I mentioned the other day that I was here in Scotland. I was in, and and I mean the, the part of Scotland I'm in right now. There, there's an there was certainly an affection for for Elizabeth, and the, they kind of like Charles because he spent a lot of time fishing in this part of uh, you know the UK. Um, not so much on Camilla, I don't think, but in terms of getting excited about the coronation, you know how they they have all the cookie tins. <laughs> You you can see them everywhere in cups and saucers and teapots and all that stuff with their faces on it. I mean, I still have the stuff from, from 81. I still, I I picked up some stuff after covering Charles and Diana's wedding. I still have the stuff. It's, (laughs) it looks a little odd of course these days, but, um, but anyway, in the, in the stores, there are these setups for coronation stuff, you know, from t-shirts to cups and saucers. And I was in a couple of stores uh, in the past few days and I waited and watched and no one picked up anything, anything at the stalls. Do you think there's really any entrepreneurs out there going, give me 10 million cookie tins (laughs) with Charles and Camilla? No, there there sure aren't. And uh, you know, the sales will start in another week. Uh, after the coronation, and they still won't be able to move the stuff. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. But also, times are different. The times are different. There was there was a time when something like that, the pageantry, would be so unique and a once-in-a-lifetime experience, whereas now they can watch Eurovision, which actually Charles and Camilla appeared on. I don't know if the Queen would appear on the Eurovision broadcast, but it's a new modern monarchy. Um it's like the Academy Awards. Once upon a time, everyone in the, on the planet almost with a TV tuned in to the Academy Awards. Now they can't get a number. Uh, so the monarchy, they're no different than the CBC. <laughs> pining, for, pining for the good old days. <laughs> uh, now people just go, I don't watch the monarchy. I don't, I don't, I don't watch them. I, don't, I get my monarchy elsewhere. Okay, our little circuit of the... Um... 
the news of the day. We'll conclude with this one. Uh, Biden, Trump. What do you think? Well, I wouldn't want to be. I'm not an ageist person. I don't like to think I am. But uh, and uh, I'm sure Joe Biden will have his faculties. But um, there's a reason why when you're that age, you're not allowed to fly a commercial aircraft with a couple of thousand people in the back. You know, you age out of certain occupations. You just do. And uh, I think president might be one of them. But then Donald Trump is no spring chicken either. I mean, he's, he seems like he's indestructible, but based on his lifestyle and his age, surely he can. So the chances of any one of them finishing a, another term is up in the air. I just can't believe that that's what it comes down to, those two people. Um, I look at Pete Buttigieg. Now, I don't know if he could ever be elected president, the same way people didn't know if Barack Obama could be elected president. But, uh, you know, he's young, he's so competent, he speaks so many languages, he's a military vet, uh, he, you know, he's quick on his feet. I just think, why don't both parties have 10 of them that they can choose from? And they don't seem to, to. And I think this is also, if you look at Canada, you look at the front bench on both of the parties, the Liberals and the Tories, I don't mean to suggest there's only two, but if you look at the front bench, um, there's not a lot of strength there. I always think about it like a hospital. Like We all know what it's like being in a hospital. We all know how complicated hospitals are. There's doctors, there's cleaning staff and everything in between. And there's people who are sick and the stakes are high. And then there's multiple unions and there's helicopters taking off. Imagine how complicated it is to run a hospital. And then you say, now, um, you think Doug Ford could run a hospital? And you go, no, no, my God, no, he could never run a hospital. He can be the premier, though. And it's the same thing, right? Would you pick Pierre Poilier to run a hospital? Or Justin Trudeau? Or any of the front bench? It's a big job. The, 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 I think the quality of people going into those jobs, uh, it's very different now than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Think of the giants that were in Brian Mulroney's cabinet. There's none of those people around anymore. Same with Cretchen's cabinet. And Very you know, few Pierre, Trude Pierre Trudeau's cabinet too. I mean, there there were giants. And you, you know, I, I I you know I get into this every once in a while. I go, is it just me? Is it because I'm you know of a certain age? I remember what that time was like, and whether it was cabinet ministers or premiers. You know, you tend to remember all those premiers from the early. 80s, the late 70s, you remember them all. They were all giants, you know, Lougheed and Davis and Blakeney and Levesque and, you know, the list goes on. Um, these days, you're kind of challenged to remember the names of all sure. the premiers. And, and I, I, you know, I hate uh, people attacking the elites, quote unquote elites, because I think it's a, it's this nebulous term and it just allows people to, uh, you know, attack people for no other reason than they don't like them. But I will say, if you look at the front benches, um, how many of those people would be comfortable uh, walking into a fish plant, sitting down in the lunchroom and having a chat? Um, not a lot of them. There's a lot of ivory towers in there. Even, you know, when Ralph Goodale was around, you know, you could see Ralph going into a gas station and talking to the guy who's underneath the, <laughs> underneath the hood of a car, but this crowd, uh, you know, and that goes for all of the parties. It just seems like a bit of a de debating club. Give me uh, your take on how Trump is still 
a player. Here you got a guy who was draft dodger, failed business person, made it only because of the money his, his father gave him. Um, you know, he all the different businesses he tried, he, he failed at. I guess you could argue that maybe he did okay on real estate, but I don't know. Every every time you hear some of these business stories about Trump, you go, whoa, how did he get away with that? You know, he's reality TV star for a while till that plummeted. He gets into politics. He's impeached twice in one term. Yeah. He's indicted 34 times. He's going to be indicted a bunch more times on other charges. Um, he's in the middle of a rape trial right now. And yet he is the likely nominee for the Republican Party. Yeah. How does that happen? I think uh, there's a lot of angry people in the world. We could get into why they're angry. That's another issue. But he appeals to them. He, you know, he said he drained the swamp, but really he was promising chaos. I'll blow it up. And for a lot of people who feel left out, they're like, good, yeah, do that. And when he said, like, let's make America great again, you know, brilliant slogan, I guess, but, you know, I guess he's talking about 50 years ago. Wasn't great for a lot of people 50 years ago. Wasn't great for working women. Wasn't great for African-Americans. Wasn't wasn't great for lots of people. Um, But there's a whole group of people that it was great for, and now they feel shut out, and they also feel like they're being accused of being uh, privileged, and they don't feel privileged, and uh, they're angry for all sorts of reasons, and he promised chaos. Now, he's actually, at his uh, rally in Waco, he said, I will be your vengeance, and he's he's floating that. Um, I will be your vengeance. That's, That's pretty out there, but there's obviously an audience for it. But I don't think he's electable. I mean, you saw live in the primaries that, um, uh, you know, his people didn't do well at all. So the Republicans, they're kind of hooped. <laughs> but he's probably going to get the nomination. Yeah. I don't know. It's chaos. <laughs> I, uh, it, uh, it terrifies me. Well, the one thing that had always made it easier for us when we were uh... – Living through turbulent times and challenging times in the past was uh, being able to listen and watch you. And so you're, you're, oh, missed, wow. you're missed in that sense. There's no question about that. Uh, but your r- books are replacing some of that. Well, uh, thank you very much. And volume uh, 34 of your life story. Uh, <laughs> well, when will it be out? This fall? Who was it? This fall. Was it, what was his name? Spike Milligan? Yeah. Um, he wrote his memoir, and in the introduction, he said, after I wrote my memoir, I promised I would never write another book. This is that book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking forward to it. And uh, Thanks very much, Peter. Listen, thank you for doing this, Rick. It's always a treat. Take care. You too. Rick Mercer, the one and only Rick Mercer. Glad to have him by. Glad to have him on the program. Um and just underlining how much we do miss him, but obviously we're going to be able to read more from Rick uh, hopefully uh, later this year when his latest book is another run at uh, a bestseller. You can kind of guarantee that'll happen. Should be, um, should be out this phone. 
All right, we have time for uh, <laughs> one more coronation story. Because I saw this the other day. I did that interview, if you hadn't already guessed, just before I left Scotland. So those were the references to, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, etc. Um, but just before I left Scotland, I was doing a little grocery shopping in, uh, I think it was a Tesco. And... Um, where was I when I did that? Dingwall, little town called Dingwall in Scotland, in northern Scotland. And I saw this thing, you know, they they had the coronation stuff up at the front of the, the store, you know, the cookie tins, etc., which nobody was buying. But I was in the uh, kind of meat and poultry section, and I saw this wrapped package, and it was called Coronation chicken i thought come on really this is the extent to which they're trying to package stuff to cash in on the coronation kind of food fit for a king so i investigated as the journalist i am well one of the lesser known traditions of the royalty group is the creation of special dishes. To mark Elizabeth's investiture back in, what was that, 52, 53? Coronation chicken, or poulet rein Elizabeth, was created. This dish, which resembles chicken salad, features cold chicken, herbs, and spices, and a mayonnaise-type sauce. So that's what had been packaged in the Tesco coronation chicken but wait there's more for charles's coronation the dishes also include coronation roast rack of lamb with asian style marinade and a strawberry and ginger trifle see what you're missing see what you're missing coronation chicken and coronation lamb. Come on, Loblaws, Sayers, Safeway. Let's get in the game. Coronation chicken, please. That wraps her up for today. Have a great week. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, originally broadcast on May 1st.